On January 8, 2020, a Ukraine International Airlines Boeing 737 is making a flight from Iran to Ukraine, but they never get there. What caused this flight to crash soon after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. And I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. Hello. Oh, we got we got patrons we gotta thank. Oh, oh yeah. We got some new patrons since the last time we got new patrons. <laughs> we yeah. are also recording way later than we normally do. But that's okay. All yeah. uh, well, Miranda and I both got sick, so it was a, a week from Absolute hell. Of sick people. I thankfully did not. Shut up. Knock on wood. Because I don't want to get sick. Nobody does. Well, thank you to our new patrons, Dylan, Tyler, and Samia. Thanks. Thank you so much for your patronage. For those of you who are unaware, you actually get a discount on your patronage if you do an annual subscription. Someone recently took advantage of that. It is advisable. I think you save like 10% or something. You save an entire month. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So you don't have to pay for one month, basically. Yeah, there you go. And it still helps us out. We really appreciate it. Yeah. So dare go. Thank you so much. Any other housekeeping stuffs and things? Uh, giving and or veteran stories for November. Please that? submit to those. You can either do that through the website. There's a tab for that. Or you can email them to us directly. Yep. Uh, check out the merch site. There's some new stuff up on there. There was a friend of ours that made a design that said, Welcome to the Fatigue Podcast. And I put it on a t-shirt because I was like, that's pretty great. Yeah. Actually, one of our patrons did. Yes. Oh, she's also one of our friends. I forgot that she's also one of our patrons. She's a patron. I also did. So (laughs) it's fine. Yes, good. And then newsletter comes out, came out last week. So if you'd like to see what we are potentially covering in the next month, you can look there. If you missed anything, it's in there. All that. So. We might have some new things coming soon. We're going to have a meeting after this episode to discuss. Yeah. Things. Things. All right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Ukraine International Airlines, flight PS752. This is the first crash that we are covering that has happened since we started the podcast. Yeah, this happened last year. Yes. On January 8th of 2020. And the report just came out on March 17th of this year. So, yeah, it's also... It's also a recommendation. Kate? Whoever it was definitely had their finger on the pulse for when this report came out, (laughs) because they recommended it right when it came out, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Yeah, probably. Yes, Kate Kate. recommended this. Yes, thanks, Kate. Thank you, Kate. So, that said, this is actually one that we're all three familiar with, since, you know, it happened since... We started the podcast. I'm not super familiar with it. No, but you are helping us with this. Like I said, this happened on January 8th of 2020. So recent. Also, just before the pandemic. Just before. It actually is relevant in this report. It is. We have lots of firsts in this. This is a Boeing 737-800 with the tail number Uniform Romeo-Papa Sierra Romeo. This was to be a flight from Tehran in Iran to Kiev. In the Ukraine, since it's the Ukrainian International Airlines. What do you know? Turns out. The captain for this flight was Volodymyr Gaponenko. That's as good as I'm going to do with that. Volodymyr is correct, because that is also the first name of their president at the time. Yes. And still, I think, 
probably. He was 50 years old at the time. He had 11,590 hours total, of which 4,462 hours were on the 737. So fairly mid-range Yeah, captain. like not super experienced, but not inexperienced. No, I would call this pretty middle of the, uh, middle of the road there, middle of career. The first officer was Serhii Komenko. He was 48 years old at the time, so two years younger. He had 7,633 hours total, of which 266 hours were on the 737. So he's pretty low experience on the 737, but mid-time overall. Please note that the Wikipedia page, as I'm currently reading it, as Nick is reading those statistics, is incorrect. Yeah, yeah I know, because I went there first, and I was like, this doesn't seem right. And it's not. In the report, it actually gives the correct information. To be fair, Wikipedia, as we've said before, is not the most reliable of sources because people can edit Wikipedia pages. Yes, definitely not. It says their total hours as their time on the 737 period, and that is not correct. Also, their names are very Ukrainian. Yep. Yeah. Very Ukraine. Yeah, want another one? Because there's a third person in the cockpit. <laughs> oh, okay. There's an instructor pilot. Oh, all right. Oleksiy Numkin. I don't know. Cool. That's, that's as good as I'm going to do with Sorry, that one, too. guys. <laughs> he is the youngest person in the cockpit at 42 years old. So he's not young, but he's not old, and he's... Younger. Younger than everybody else. He had 12,052 hours total, so he was the most experienced overall in the cockpit. He was also the most experienced on the 737 with 9,820 hours. The airplane had arrived at 12.53 a.m. into Tehran that morning, so in the middle of the night, basically. The ground services refueled the airplane... As the passengers arrived that morning, later that morning, and their check bags were prepared for loading, calculations were done for weight and balance at that time, and it was determined that they would have to leave behind 82 bags, 82 passenger bags, to be within their max takeoff weight. So the ground service crews did not load 82 of the bags. Wow. Must be some heavy people or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, from what I read, actually, this was because so many of them also brought so many things into the passenger cabin with them, oh. like so many carry-on bags. Carry-on bags. They ended up having to put a bunch of bags down in the bag hold as it was, so that kind of took the place of their check bags. Oh. They just left the check bags behind. Well, that sucks. When that happens. What happens with that? They mail your back to you, right? They usually either mail it to you or it goes on the next flight if there's room. It just, yeah, it, it sucks. Solid. Yep. There's nothing nothing nice about that. But Moral they, of the story. They have to do it. Shit. Yeah, well, and it, just remember, I mean, anytime you're flying, I know we haven't really talked about this. This is just a good tip for flying in general is your check bag should never be anything important. Nope. Ever. Ever. No, like stuff you can live without or you can get somewhere else. Do not put, like, documents in there, your wallet, anything like that. Also, good note, if you're traveling someplace where you're staying multiple nights, bring at least one change of clothes in your carry-on. Yep. Just in case you lose your check bag. And I know it's nice of them and all to check, gate check (laughs) your carry-on, but don't expect it. One. And two, it might not make it. So... Yeah. Always be aware. Moving on. 4.35 a.m. The crew boarded the airplane and performed their pre-flight checks. Passenger boarding began at 4.45 a.m. So this is really super early in the morning. Yes, this is uh-huh. a very early flight. Oof. Which, by the way, all of these times are in local time. And as it was written in the report, and Tehran time is three and a half hours ahead of Greenwich Mean Time. They're one of those places that has a half hour difference from the rest of the world. 
There's not very many of those, but this is one of them. Which makes Weird. no sense to me. But so, yeah, that's a thing. That's fun. There's your next trivia fact, I guess. Yeah. 167 passengers boarded the flight. One passenger did not make it to the airport in time to board oh. the flight. I was like, what? One passenger, <laughs> one passenger didn't make it to the airport in time. Well, One passenger got left behind. In addition to the 167 passengers that were on board, there were six cabin crew and three flight crews. So there were nine crew on a 737-800. That's a lot. That's a that lot. is a lot. You will never find a 737-800 in the United States operating with six active cabin crew. No, usually it's about four. four. Two in the yeah. front, two in the back. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly right. At 5.13 a.m., the crew requested their IFR flight clearance from the air traffic controller, and the air traffic controller provided it. At 5.49 a.m., the doors were closed. The flight was supposed to have departed at 5.15 a.m., but the weight issue delayed departure. After a series of coordinations between three separate controllers, including the Tehran ACC, who coordinates with the Iran Defense Department about possible danger areas along the flight route, the flight was pushed back at 5.55 a.m. and the engines were started. So there was a lot of having to coordinate their clearance and their departure and all that. We'll get more into that later. Yep. The flight taxied to runway 29 right. And at 6.12 a.m., the aircraft took off from 29 right. Almost immediately after takeoff, they were handed off to the Maribad approach controller and announced that they were on the 1A radar procedure, or standard instrument departure. So most airports have standard instrument departure procedures, which is where you leave and you follow these series of waypoints to get out of the area, depending on where you're going. Yeah. That's a standard instrument departure. Yeah. So basically they just told this approach controller, hey, we're on this standard instrument departure. Yeah. Just so you know, where we're, we're supposed to be. Yep, that's pretty much it. At that time, the air traffic controller then cleared the flight to climb to flight level 260 and instructed the flight to turn right once they passed through 6,000 feet and fly directly to waypoint Parrot, P-A-R-O-T. So basically with that, they were told once they passed through 6,000 feet that they were to start a right turn and fly to one of the waypoints along their standard instrument departure, but skip a portion so they were supposed to fly a different part of their the standard instrument departure, and instead the air traffic controller told them to deviate. 6.14 a.m. and 56 seconds. As the aircraft was climbing through 8,100 feet, a large explosion occurred on the aircraft, and it disappeared from the ATC's secondary radar. At 6.17 a.m., the air traffic controller tried to contact the flight, but received no response. The air traffic controller watched the flight moving on the primary radar, it appeared to make a right turn and fly erratically before also disappearing from the primary radar at 6.18 a.m. Not a good sign. No. Witnesses on the ground saw the large explosion in the dark morning sky and watched as pieces of the plane fell toward parts of the city below, while a large portion of the plane continued on a track down to the right. The airplane passed over the residential area of Kalajabad before its initial impact with a gazebo in the Lale Park. The aircraft then struck the ground hard, and the fuselage and wings disintegrated upon impact, showering the entire park, adjacent football field, street, and residential area. Pieces of the plane fell into public areas including a playground and some private residence and farmland. Along the final flight path after the explosion were pieces of the AC, the air conditioning system, and aircraft skin. Much of the airplane appeared to have made it to the actual accident site, including the wings, tail plane, and cockpit. So the four corners. So the four corners of the airplane all made it to the actual crash site. The heavy impact 
to the ground disintegrated all of these parts into tiny pieces, however. So the airplane yeah. had a really heavy impact with the ground. Well, it doesn't help. They were also heavy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they were on takeoff, right? Uh-huh. So. One of the strange things that came up, though, is that three out of the four main exit doors were found, but the fourth never was. Ooh. All 176 people on board perished in the accident. From what I could find, there were no injuries or deaths on the ground. Just to provide that breakdown to you now, because I may or may not forget later, 82 of those on board were Iranian, 63 were Canadian, 11 were Ukrainian, 10 were Swedish, 7 were Afghani, and 3 were from the UK. So to think that the second majority were Canadian. Yep. Of all and things. this was actually well, a really big deal in Canada at the time. So this is according to the Wikipedia page, because that's what I got that from. That was all according to the Ukrainian foreign minister, Vadim Pristyko. Sure. Yep, that's his name. And this was the largest loss of Canadian lives in aviation since the 1985 bombing of Air India Flight 182. According to the Canadian transport minister, Mark Garneau, uh, 57 Canadians died in the crash, which is the number that I read for the most part. So... A lot of Canadians. A lot I'm not of Canadians. entirely sure why that deviates, but okay. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Okay, so here we go. This investigation was performed by the Aircraft Accident Investigation Board, or the AAIB, of the Islamic Republic of Iran, with lots of aiding investigation authorities. Per ICAO rules and the Chicago Convention, the countries who manufactured the plane and its engines can be involved in the investigation. So the United States NTSB and the French BEA joined the investigation along with Boeing. The Americans all needed a special license from the Treasury and State Departments since sanctions were in place in Iran. Yes. Yep. The country where the plane was registered is also allowed in the investigation, so the Ukrainian Ministry of Infrastructure was involved. Also, any country who had citizens on board, so the Swedish Accident Investigation Authority, the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, the UK AAIB, and the German BFU all joined the investigation. That's a lot of investigating authority. <laughs> it's just That's an investigation lot. party. There's a I know. huge, huge amount of investigative authorities there. Yes. Afghanistan was invited, but did not participate. Now, some of you already know what happened, as it didn't really happen that long ago. For those of you who don't, we'll get into it, but I do want to preface this analysis by reading most of section 1.6 of the report because I feel that it is incredibly relevant to the situation. Quote, The objective of the investigation of an accident subject to Annex 13 of the Chicago Convention shall be the identification of the root causes and prevention of similar incidents and accidents by determining the corrective measures required and implementing them accordingly. This type of investigation is not conducted with the aim of apportioning blame or liability. Such issues are obviously important and will be addressed by other authorities through their investigations in an accident investigation conducted with the aim of improving safety. But if the process is diverted to simply apportioning blame or liability, safety goals will be put at risk for two major reasons. First, individuals involved in an accident would naturally be led to defending themselves, hence reducing their cooperation and identifying factors having contributed to it. Even worse, some would consider concealing issues concerning their responsibilities in case of occurrence of an error leading to an accident, so that they can escape blame and or avoid liability, and resort to hiding such sensitive issues rather than reporting voluntarily and cooperating to eliminate the areas of concern. Second, if the factors contributing to an accident are not well determined and eliminated, the identification of liable individuals and eliminating them from the system in place will not entail the prevention of similar occurrences. 
On the contrary, the very factors leading such liable individuals to commit the error causing the accident will still be looking for others. Hence, similar accidents will take place through others' negligence in the same area. This report never blames the entities who are named in this report and has no adversarial position with them. The investigation team did all its efforts to use neutral wording, information, analysis, and conclusions to conduct the investigation and preparing the report. No biased or misleading interpretation of this report will be valid. Skipping ahead a bit. The details of an accident could be painful and poignant to the victim's families. Stating the contributing factors could also be interpreted as justifying or downplaying them or making them look inevitable simply. However, it should certainly be borne in mind that elaborating on the causes of an accident is not supposed to mean it was inevitable. More importantly, no analysis and elaboration on such issues will be in any way worthy of comparison neither to the accident victims' lost lives nor to the family's hurt feelings. The PS752 Accident Investigation Team would hereby genuinely like to extend their heartfelt condolences and sympathies to those having suffered distress and loss as a result of the accident and show great respect for their feelings and emotions. End quote. It's one of the most emotion-felt statements I've ever heard in a report. I know. I feel like, especially when you find out what happened, yeah, I think that I, it was necessary to put that in there. I mean, I do, I do get it. So, there's that. Now, this whole situation was really complicated, and I'm not entirely sure who is allowed to see the crash site and when. Various media reports on January 9th, the day after the crash, showed that the crash site started to be cleared with bulldozers... That's no, a horrible no, no, idea. No, 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 no. And various investigators were obviously concerned. But freaking out, you mean? They were probably freaking out. They were like, why are you moving evidence? Stop moving shit. But Iran denied doing such a thing. <sighs> I'm not going to go into that. On January 10th, Ukrainian investigators were allowed on site. There were details that were immediately available upon viewing the wreckage. Part of the left wing had been found amidst vegetation. The wing itself was burned, but the vegetation was not, and the inner wall didn't show fire damage, so something burned in the air, and it wasn't the fuel. Parts of the right wing were found with no fire damage. There is a fire on the ground near the Auxiliary Power Unit, or APU, which is found in the tail of the aircraft, for those of you who are new here. Of the four main exit doors, three were found. We assume it was the forward left door that wasn't. You'll understand why we think that in a bit. The entire cabin was obliterated from impact, but without burns, and no fire extinguishers were used, so it's safe to say there wasn't a fire in most of the cabin, nor the cargo compartment, as none of the luggage was burned. The main burn area was towards the front left side, as well as where the left wing connected with the fuselage. There was fire damage to the ceiling of the cabin in the front between the cockpit door and the front cargo area. I don't know what they mean by that! Because that's a weird description, but that's what they said. Sure. And it seems to have been from a fire in the electronics bay, quote, towards the above, end quote. <laughs> Whatever what that What the heck is towards the above? <laughs> Whatever that means. This is a translated report for those of you who couldn't guess that by now. Towards the beyond. <laughs> is that in the ceiling? I'm guessing that's what they mean by that. That's generally where electronics are. That's what I would think. As we covered in episode nine? I guess that would be towards the above. Yeah. Uh, the the top of the cabin? I have other fun little quotes like that later. Oh, good. Okay. And the avionics equipment was largely destroyed. So we can guess there was some kind of fire in the electronics bay. Leads to chaos, generally speaking. Yep. There was also serious fire damage in the cockpit. That being said, the ID of the instructor pilot was found without any burns. 
That's kind of weird. There's yeah. a picture of it in the report. There is. For those of you who want to go looking for that. Part of the cooling system was found before the crash site near Jandak Village, and another part, a heat exchanger, from the same system was found at the crash site, but melted, showing a severe fire in that area. Great. Both engines were destroyed by impact and were shown to be operating at impact, but there were no signs of fire. All of the, the victims had to be identified by DNA testing because they were unidentifiable otherwise. Considering that they were traveling very quickly toward the ground? And the cabin was obliterated? Yeah, it's probably why. Doesn't entirely surprise in any way. Multiple media reports show body bags. I'm not sure what's in them. They don't really show uh, things that look like bodies in the body bags. Like, they don't conform to the shape of a human being. So that's... You, you guys get the picture. Awful. Yeah. Two of the three flight data recorders were found. The QAR, or the quick access recorder, was not. Well, I mean... Of the, of the three, I'm glad they found the CVR and the FDR. Yep. Yes. However, those two were damaged not from fire... Just impact. Here's the bigger, however. Iran did not have the capacity to read the recorders. Okay, no biggie. Let's just have the equipment sent to them from the United States. Yeah, that didn't happen. Quote, despite the fact a list of them had been provided to the team and necessary financial resources were offered for purchase, the required equipment could not still be provided due simply to the U.S. sanctions imposed on Iran, as well as the direct and indirect suppliers concerned about penalties. End quote. Oof. So, politics. Ultimately, the recorders were sent to a Ukrainian lab for the BEA to read out. Or at least that's what was originally arranged. Now we're going to get <laughs> really current here. Here's another quote. Following the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic and consulting with representatives of other states whose participation in the readout process was necessary, the readout was postponed due to travel restrictions as well as those of the French laboratory. In the end, once the issues were resolved and coordination was made, the readout was performed from July 20th to 24th at a BEA laboratory, end quote. So this was the first time we also get to bring up the pandemic as an actual factor. Thanks, COVID. An accident. And an investigation. Yeah. Ukraine had to help translate since much of the conversation in the cockpit was in Russian and Ukrainian. Interesting. But we'll come back to that since that obviously took several months to happen. Yes. So all of what I said before was part of the official investigation. Very official. Lots of officials. Meanwhile, there's the rest of the world who's freaking out about World War III potentially starting. Yeah. There's still memes about that. Yeah. Amidst that, quote, numerous videos were released in the cyberspace. That was the quote in the, the report. internet, you mean? Yes. End quote. Or <laughs> cyberspace. The, or the internet, for those of us who are hip with the lingo. <laughs> Who the heck calls it cyberspace Not Not just cyberspace. The cyberspace. The cyberspace. That was what they wrote in the report. I don't know why they couldn't just use the internet internet. as well. But uh, And fun fact, the person who invented the word cyberspace doesn't know how to send an email. (laughs) Anyway, so there's multiple videos on the internet. And all of them showed a missile hitting the aircraft. Yep. One from a construction site specifically showed a second missile hitting the aircraft. Investigators verified the authenticity of these videos, going so far as to go to the construction site and make measurements to see if everything matched what the FDR said leading up. Investigators verified those videos and then went to all of the militaries in the area wondering what the f*** did they do. 
On the evening of the 10th, Iranian investigators were made aware that their own air defense had performed a missile launch and would announce as such, which they did so early in the morning of the 12th and handed over information related to the launch event to investigators. Here is what they were given. At 4.54 that morning, one of the air defense units of Tehran was relocated by 100 meters from what I understand and was not recalibrated accordingly and had an error of 105 degrees because of the failure to not realign to the north. Oh. As such, at 6.14, it detected a target at 250 vertical degrees and flying a heading of 56 degrees, when in fact PS-752 was flying at a 143-degree vertical azimuth and a heading of 309 degrees. At 6.14, the operator announced the target to the coordination center, but the message never got there. It was never recorded at the coordination center. And without receiving a response from the coordination center, the operator fired a missile at the detected target at 6.14 and 39 seconds. The second missile was fired at 6.15 and 9 seconds, striking 13 seconds later, or detonating 13 seconds later, I should rather say. The missiles themselves were launched from a TOR-M1 air defense unit, or ADU. It's a short-range air defense system with the radar and launcher system all in one unit with a range of 12 kilometers or about 7.5 miles. It's designed to throw 2,500 to 3,000 pieces of 2.4 by 7.8 by 7.8 millimeter or 1 by 3 by 3 inch size tungsten shrapnel at a speed of 1,800 meters per second. Ouch. The explosives are 50% Royal Demolition Explosive or RDX and 40% Trinitrotoluene more commonly known as TNT. Investigators accordingly gathered numerous samples from the wreckage and used gas chromatography mass spectrometry. There's a term. Holy crap. Wow. (laughs) I knew that term from various classes I've taken. They used that particular method to find traces of TNT on the outer layers of the fuselage, as well as TNT on the inside of the windows of the cabin. Not great. No. And found that all explosions on board were either directly from the missiles themselves or from subsequent failures caused by the initial missile explosions. What was odd, though, and wasn't really mentioned again, was that the shrapnel found in the victims and their seats weren't from the missiles, but from parts of the aircraft itself. Which I thought was interesting, considering that each missile is supposed to deliver 3,000 pieces of shrapnel. Yeah, that's not good. So, I mean, if you think about it, it detonates on the outside of the aircraft... And then it blows stuff in. So I guess that makes sense. To an extent, yes. Now let's go to the black boxes. Recording started at engine startup, as normal. A strong and short impulse was recorded at 6.14 and 56 seconds, similar to a detonation. The CBR then recorded an altitude alert C chord until the end of the recording at 6.15 and 15 seconds. Before it ended, the CVR recorded the crew becoming aware of weird conditions and taking emergency action. The instructor pilot commanded turning on the APU, which was heard, and then he said the engines were running, already trying to diagnose what went wrong just before the recording ended. Data from the ADU as well as video evidence showed that the second missile had actually failed and did not hit the aircraft, but rather exploded near the aircraft. But investigators decided not to make any conclusions about the detonation and effect of the second missile since the data was unreliable from the black boxes already having failed at this point in the flight, and the second missile doesn't really affect the outcome of the investigation. Fair enough. The first missile detonated and took out the transponder and FDR, which is why it disappeared from radar, 
and the aircraft began to experience cascading failures, as heard mm. on the CBR, until one of the generators in one of the engines began to fail, which led to the CBR failing about 19 seconds after the first missile detonated. So, why was this missile operator so trigger-happy? Miranda's going to give us a little history lesson. Welcome to my history lesson of <laughs> 2021. So, we are going to start off talking about the Persian Gulf Crisis. This happened between 2019 and 2020, obviously. And it started in early May 2019. The U.S. began to build up military forces in the Persian Gulf region to deter an alleged planned campaign by Iran and its non-state allies to attack American forces and interests in the Persian Gulf in Iraq. So we, as a country in the United States, sent a bunch of military forces to make sure that we were safe, basically. Basically, this didn't go forward. Yeah, they got intelligence yes. and acted on it. This caused a lot of political tension between the two countries, Not obviously. Really. And caused the U.S. to withdraw from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the Iran deal, or the Iran nuclear deal. Yes. Which, which really happened timely. in 2018. So they made this deal with we made this deal with Iran in 2018, and then we pulled out after this happened in 2019. And that's really timely because by the time you guys hear this episode, between us recording it, by the time you hear this, they might have a, a new deal signed or might not. Who knows? Oh, dear Lord. in the midst this week of working on that. When this happened, the U.S. designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization. Now, if you don't know what the IRGC is, it's basically one of the main military forces in Iran. And they were like, that's a terrorist organization. I'm like, you know, sometimes we make really stupid decisions. This, this is the start of one of them. So as a result... Iran designated the United States Central Command as a terrorist organization. <sighs> it just gets worse from here. This led to the 2019-2020 U.S. Embassy attack in Baghdad. This took place on December 31st of 2019. This was a response to the airstrikes on December 29th, 2019. The U.S. conducted a series of strikes against the uh, Qataid Hazabads, I think that's how you say it, weapon depots and command centers in Iraq and Syria. So they bombed the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. The U.S. blamed Iran for and its non-state allies in Iraq for the orchestration of the attack on the embassy. Iran denied the allegation, to which the U.S. sent a lot more troops to the Persian Gulf area as a response. Okay. This reinforced the security at the Baghdad embassy. So they were trying to make sure this didn't happen again, again right. basically. On January 8th, 2020, a military operation named Operation Martyr Somalan, Soleimani. Soleimani, thank you. Martyr Soleimani. Uh, Iran's IRGC launched over 12 ballistic missiles at the uh, Ain al-Assad Air Base in western Iraq and another base in Erbil. This took place as a response to killing of Major General Qasim Soleimani. Yeah, Soleimani. Via a U.S. air drone attack. Yep, that happened. No one died from the strikes of the missiles that were launched by the IRGC. But about 110 servicemen had traumatic brain injuries from it. 
Qasem Soleimani was a general in the IRGC for about 20 years. He had been in actually longer than that. He had yeah. joined the that part of the military in Iran in 1979, and he had been a general since uh, around 1988. So, he, And he was like a political figure and involved in a, a big, bunch of the politics that were going on in Iran. He was a big figure. Yeah, yeah, he was a big name. He was killed on January 3rd, 2020, by a U.S. air drone strike near Baghdad International Airport. The strike was ordered by the Trump administration without Congress approval. Uh, that was a problem, big problem, and actually Iran had given the United States a uh, thing that said, we would like to arrest President Trump for murder. Oh, I didn't know about that. Here's more about that. So apparently Trump back in 2017, this is according to the Wikipedia page, by the way, and it's not political. This is literally facts. He had talked about how much he would like to see this specific person in Iran dead. Okay. They launched this missile strike without Congress approval to kill this general. When they did that, they said that they had protection under the 2002 rule that happened after 9-11 that said, hey, we need to protect ourselves against foreign enemies. And then Congress came back and said, no, they had no attack on us whatsoever. They had not attacked U.S. soil. You did not have a reason to do this. This is illegal. You can't do this. And Congress had a big, huge fight about it. It was huge. If you want to read more about that, I highly suggest it because I, I left some of that out because, oof, oof, it's a lot. Um, it was also an issue internationally, too. Like, yeah, really? <laughs> this is uh, a lot of politics we won't get too deep into because no, that's that's uh, that's messy and that's not our gig. But we are going into this because it is relevant. Yes. And it, this was also a response to the bombing of the U.S. embassy. So the problem that keeps happening here, I don't know if you can tell, is that we do something, then they do something, then... We do something, then they do something. We do something, they do something. Yes. That is why this whole thing about World War III problem was happening. Because we literally were trying to fight fire with fire, literally back and forth for like two weeks straight. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't know, I'm sure you'll get more into this, but the person that, the trigger happy missile guy, I don't know if they were like trying to launch a missile I'll at us. No, no, uh, 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 but uh. yeah. That, that has been my history lesson. Thanks for coming. So, as Miranda mentioned, at 2 a.m. on January 8th, in response to the U.S. actions, quote, the armed forces of the Islamic Republic of Iran started a missile attack on the al-Assad base in Iraq, where the U.S. forces were based. The attack ended at 2.05. So it was five minutes. Considering the possibility of the conflict escalation through the American counterattack by its military forces in the region, the relevant defense units, including the air defense sector, was placed on a higher level of alertness, end quote. The region has a long history of military and civilian aviation having to coordinate airspace and risk mitigation because of tension levels going back to the 80s. As the military receives intelligence, they evaluate it and work with civil aviation authorities to form plans and risk mitigation techniques that then get implemented under the authority of the Civil Aviation Organization of Iran, which is their aviation authority, much like the FAA is ours. Yep. So military hears something, they decide what to do, civil aviation does it, basically. Right. It's all a working together. So for a while they had like no-fly zones in part of Iraq, accordingly. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, 
just coordinating those kinds of don't fly here, you might get bombed kind of things because there's so much military activity and action in the area. At the time, it was established that there were three parties that could be performing military activity in Iranian airspace. Iranian defense. Yes. Attacking forces. A.K.A. us. The U.S. Or terrorists, who have quite the history in the region of attacking aviation, particularly in the form of hijacking, though this was considered a low risk at the time. Quote, according to the analysis, the probability of an intentional attack on commercial aircraft by foreign forces was determined to be low, but the unintentional damage to commercial aircraft was considered probable due to misidentification or mistargeting in the event of conflict. Commercial aircraft departing from joint mi civil military airports would be at higher risk for misidentification and mistargeting by enemy, and the risk of being misidentified by commercial aircraft departing from commercial airports has been determined to be lower. In order to minimize the risk of misidentification by defense forces, it was decided to identify and track all commercial flights from the beginning so that in the event of a conflict, the military forces would be able to take immediate action thanks to their full knowing of directing flights to safe areas, end quote. So basically, everyone's working together to be like, no, that's, that's, that's a commercial plane. Don't shoot that down. Yeah. Should conflict erupt in the area, all commercial aviation would be put on a ground stop, you know. So they don't get hit with the missile? Uh-huh. And then air routes would be gradually cleared with military coordination. So if your flight's already in the air, it's like, well, you can't put me on a ground stop. So we need to figure out how to route you to a safe area. Right. Preventative measures were implemented to mitigate risk. Quote, in the event of a conflict, it was likely that the defense system would misidentify the aircraft leaving the country's airports as a hostile aircraft. Yeesh. The risk associated with these flights was calculated to be very low. Preventative measure. Before entering a clearance to start up aircraft engine, air traffic control units would have to coordinate with the air defense sector through the Tehran ACC. The air defense sector would not allow the engine startup if an air attack was launched. In the absence of an airstrike report, the start of flights to low-risk areas would be unimpeded once identified in the defense network. End quote. So that's kind of what Nick was saying when they were even asking permission to start up their engines. Right. They had to coordinate with air traffic controllers who were coordinating with the military to see, is there anything going on? Can they go? Can they even start their engines? Right. right. So that was their preventative measure. That being said, all risk mitigation procedures were in place and used for Flight 752. Everything went according to plan. They believed they had a safe flight plan. Yep. To further safety at the time of the accident, the airspace between Iraq and Iran had been basically shut down, canceling numerous flights, even out of this airport. There was, like, a British Airways flight that was supposed to take off to Iraq. That didn't happen. There was a Turkish Airlines flight. That didn't happen. Yep. But all of this risk mitigation didn't work because the risk at hand exceeded the predicted risk and led to a misidentification of civil aircraft due to a quote-unquote unforeseen chain of events. I would argue that so, it could have been foreseen. It w Not by anybody in the aviation portion of no, this. No, I would say that, yes, you are correct. I'm not saying that the people on the aviation side would understand, but, like, military... And they're part of this whole risk mitigation thing. Right. They do factor in human error into 
parts of the risk mitigation. That's the whole reason for risk mitigation is human error. But they did not account for the fact of someone not calibrating their entire defense unit, air defense unit, ADU, to not be calibrated with the compass. I mean, they moved it and then they did nothing. They just let it run the way it was. So they thought that the, the target was coming from the west. Even though it wasn't. Not the airport. So what may have been intended to actually protect the airport and the city ended up targeting airplanes from the uh -huh. airport and the city. Investigators also found that the operating military unit in question was not responsible for monitoring, naming, or selecting targets. And was only supposed to fire at a target when told to do so. And well, yet, this defense unit stepped out of their bounds when their own human error caused the system to misidentify the aircraft as a target and then fired without permission. That's the big thing. Yeah. Like, so it's not their job to be looking for targets. Yeah. They found one, reported it, and then didn't wait for permission to fire. Yeah, this, that was one of the things you said yes. in, in the story. This is the big, the big, big, big thing. It was a huge breakdown in military command. Which military do you know? Is it the Iranian it Iranian military? Yes. Okay. And they fessed up to it. Which good, right? I mean when you when you screw up, yeah, you screwed up. Really bad. And if if you lied about it, it would have been ten times worse when they found out that it was your fault. So And they it took them a couple days. I would have just fessed up to it then and there and be like, No, we really messed up. We screwed up. We screwed up. Now from what I see from media reports, which, again, we have a couple media reports listed on our website. There's a plethora of them all over the internet. Have fun if you really want to delve into that. But most of Iran pretty much blamed this single individual for not recalibrating the ADU and then firing without permission. I have a hard time pinning it just on one person because then were they not trained properly? Like, it's never just one person. Well, we talk about that all the time. Like, it's yeah. like... Was there any, like, crew resource management, quote-unquote, in, in place? Like, he knew he had to wait for another person to fire, right? Was there another person with him to confirm? Do they not have a commanding officer on site? Yeah. Right. Like, what my, – my big problem is, yeah, you can – he's the one who committed this by act – like – Acting. Act to act on – and that caused this to happen, but – why is there no oversight, yeah. especially on a missile strike? You know, like right. why, why are you making this decision on your own and allowed to do so? And then also, yeah, it I don't know. It's, none of it makes a lot of sense. It's a tr probably a training problem. There was probably like a staffing problem. Like uh -huh. you got to think it's probably not just one person. No, but that's definitely how it's outfitted to be even in the report, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that is my own personal feelings. Mm -hmm. That is not what the report says. Um, other parts of the report, they, nothing was wrong with the civil aviation side of it. Everything went according to plan. They did nothing wrong. The crew did everything correctly. Oh, of course they did. Yeah. They didn't know they'd get hit by a missile. No, and they no had of course no, not. No training for it. A lot of analyses are usually spent trying to figure out how can we prevent this in the future. I want to say that the investigators did not make any rec recommendations regarding safety enhancement of the aircraft because, quote, civil aviation aircraft are not designed and manufactured in a way to be missile resistant. And they shouldn't be. End quote. No. And they deemed any safety enhancements to be pointless. There's nothing that civil aviation could do. There's nothing that they should do in the future. You're not supposed to get hit from a missile. 
Right. This is entirely on the Iranian military. Yeah. Which they admit to. Which, given the time period. Considering. The circumstances. Good for them for fessing up. Yes. Because let's be honest. If that happened in U.S. airspace, would we fess up to it? Uh, We we might. Uh, uh, It depends. That's a lot of speculation I'm not getting into. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and we'll leave it at that. But, I mean... You got to think like it's good that they eventually were like, yeah, we screwed up. Like that was our fault. Sorry. Yes. So kudos where kudos are due. And it's actually kind of nice to know that because I thought it was an intentional strike. I thought they intentionally no, no. hit nope, the aircraft. Nope. 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 But it was that a misidentification. Was the, that was not the case. Uh, eventually, one day in the future, if anyone suggests it, we will cover other missile strikes that were very intentional, such as Korean Airlines Flight 007. Um, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. Those were both intentional missile intentional. strikes. Yep. Was the one was Malaysian Flight 17 intentional? There's a lot of debate about that one. Last okay. I heard, isn't I, that the one that crashed in Ukraine? Yeah. I don't know that they necessarily intended to hit such a big airplane. Korean Airlines Flight 007 was definitely intentional. Yes. And justified, technically. Technically. They that- justified it. For themselves. Uh, 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 uh. We'll no, get they, into it if anyone ever suggests it. Yeah, because it that that's a whole other can of worms. All okay, right. break, 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 then, break. Yeah, the holiday season is here. Have you started your shopping yet? If not, don't worry. We got a cool place for you to check out to buy unique gifts for your family and friends. Check out Wild Gallery. They're a small gallery based in Austin, Texas that sells original Native American art. Their art is a great way to decorate your place or to give as a great holiday gift to your friends and family. This is a great way to support a small business and give your loved ones something different for the holidays. Check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery. That's whiskey, yankee, lima, delta, dot gallery, where you can make an appointment to see art in person, learn more about the artist, and of course, shop. Again, check out Wild Gallery at wild.gallery today. Okay, let's get into the findings. So there was 17 findings. We're not doing 17 of these. Actually, we're not doing very many at all because some of these are poorly translated or not relevant. Not, I wouldn't say not relevant. Not important to the outcome of what happened mm. to me. Just like they deemed the second missile. Right. They found that the aircraft was misidentified as a hostile target by an air defense unit. Two missiles were fired at PS-752. They found that at 6.14.56 seconds, the warhead of first launched missile detonated in the proximity of the aircraft, and almost simultaneously, the aircraft transponders stopped transmitting radio signals, together with the termination of the FDR recording. They found that the missile detonation near the aircraft caused damage to the aircraft systems, after which the cascading damage was observable. So, basically, they just kept losing things. They took a video of it, yeah. Yeah, and they were just there was just things that went downhill really quickly in the aircraft systems. I mean, they lost basically so many electrical systems since electrical runs through the area the missile hit. Yeah. They found that after the detonation of the first missile, the three cockpit crew members were still alive. They appear to have sustained no physical injuries and were just involved in managing the situation. Did we determine the missile hit the left side? The left side. Front left. The front left. So it didn't... But it wasn't front left enough for it to hit the cockpit. Correct. Though there was a fire in the cockpit. Oh. Yes. Okay. But they were alive and, un- in- and apparently not injured enough to be. 
Well, they Obviously tried to fly the plane. Yes. Yeah, I mean. But there's the, only so much you can do. Right. Per the CVR, they weren't injured. They were just trying to figure out what was going on and how right. to deal with it. But that was only until the CVR cut out, which wasn't much longer. At 6.15 and 9 seconds, the second missile was launched toward the aircraft by the Air Defense Unit. It is likely that this missile did not affect the aircraft, yet it is not possible to comment on this explosion and its impact with acceptable certainty. So they don't know how closely that missile detonated to the airplane and how much it would have affected the airplane or how much damage it would have done. Though it was shortly after that the entire thing began to fail. So you can, there's multiple surveillance cameras, witness videos, etc. all over the internet where you can see the second missile hitting, quote-unquote, detonating, really. Yes. And you can see that the flight fails not long after. Right. Pretty immediately. So, I mean, one missile's bad enough, and it probably would have crashed with one missile hitting it, having two missiles hit it. I mean, it's there's nothing you can do. Nope. There's just nothing nope. you can do. They found that the aircraft had maintained its structural integrity by the time it crashed into the ground and exploded at 6.18 and 23 seconds in Kalajabad, near Shirayur, the southwest of Tehran. That's what they wrote. So, the airplane was intact. When it hit the ground. Until it hit the ground, yeah. Basically, apart from the parts that weren't. A couple of parts. <laughs> there was a few things that fell. So I don't really go into many of the other findings because, like I said, most of this dives into things we'll talk about actually in the recommendations as well, but mostly irrelevant things. Uh, the only other thing that they brought up in the findings that I felt was not irrelevant but not consequential is the ELT worked. But a signal was never received from the ELT. Which is the emergency locator transmitter. Reason, yeah. yeah. Reason for that being is because the signal transmitting antenna that transmits to satellites broke on impact. Oh, yeah. And so the ELT was transmitting, but it was transmitting from nothing. Yeah, it didn't have anything to transmit. Also, they aren't entirely sure how much it was transmitting because the internal parts of the ELT are not built to withstand impact. So they were so like, some of it might have been damaged. So what's the point of the thing? Shouldn't it be as reinforced as a black box? That's one of the recommendations. Gotcha. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to dive into too many of the recommendations either, actually, because a lot of them are really wordy and actually don't make much sense. So I'm not entirely sure what they're getting at. Uh, they also have an entirely, entire portion of safety actions, things that did get changed after the accident or the shootdown. And for the most part... You have to understand when I'm going to talk about these safety recommendations and these safety actions that there's not much they could do. Nope. Nope. Because they can only talk about the aviation side of things. They have no control over the defense and the military, the military side of things. Yeah. So there's basically next to nothing that they can actually recommend out of this because it wasn't their fault. Yeah. Nope. Primary of which is the only thing that they felt they can do, and this is what they highlight throughout here is risk management on the aviation side just how I mean they likely had is good it risk management but relatively but how likely is it that you might get shot at and is it worth it basically was, is what they say should they have taken the flight right yeah well i mean you know it's so early in the morning there's so many things but here that I feel like... But it was just a couple hours after the Iran launched missiles so but there's, i guess that's true but still there's like a level of how would they know how would they know they were going to get shot at? They There's... were coordinating with the military. The military right. was the ones telling them. They were already told that everything should have been fine. 
they didn't know that there was going to be a mistake. And apparently one of the things they recommend, a lot of what they talk about throughout this is about the risk mitigation and coordinating with the militaries, obviously, but also building in a human factor. Yeah. So we'll get into that first. The accident causes and contributing factors. The cause of the accident. The air defense is launching two surface-to-air missiles at flight PS-752, Uniform Romeo Papa Sierra Romeo aircraft. The detonation of the first missile warhead in proximity of the aircraft caused damage to the aircraft systems, and the intensification of damage led to the aircraft to crash into the ground and explode instantly. Other contributing factors. The mitigating measures and defense layers and risk management provided to be ineffective due to the occurrence of an unanticipated error in threat identifications and ultimately failed to protect the flight safety against the threats caused by the alertness of defense forces. Right. Short and to the point. Yeah, short and to the point. So things that they changed. The NOTAM procedure was revised by Iran Airports and Air Navigation Company. To promptly issue NOTAMs about any change in Tehran FIR airspace management that results from the outcome of a conducted security risk assessment or military instructions. The reason, see, this, the way this reads is part of why I don't go through many of these, because that doesn't make much sense. So, let's break down a couple, let's break down a couple of those acronyms, just for everyone's sake. So, a NOTAM is a... Notice to Airmen. So it's just what you should know as a pilot when you're operating in and out of a certain airport or airspace. Yeah, it usually, like, NOTAMs will tell you things like if there's a, uh, like, IFR, like if you have to fly IFR, if uh, there's a runway that's closed. Yeah, more specifically, it usually pertains to things that are like, oh, this uh, instrument landing system is out of operation for this runway. The glide slope's not working. Taxiway closed between such and such. Or missiles were launched. (laughs) Notice to airmen... Missiles in the area. Yeah. That is actually something they could say. And uh, there's... The FAA had issued no TAMs for the airspace between Iran and Iraq at the time. Yep. The other that I want to break down is FIR, which is Flight Information Region. So it's a section of airspace. Right. So retranslating what all of that said is basically issue notices to airmen about the airspace... So that you can effectively issue risk assessment and management. Or military instructions. (laughs) Yes. So I'm not going to dive into too much else of what they actually changed, because most of it's related to that. The notice to airmen and the risk management, those things. Let's just dive into the recommendations. Safety recommendation to the states managing the airspace. They recommend promptly issuing NOTAMs regarding any limitation or any change on the provision of services, followed by the change in civil-military coordination status in short term. So, they really want a lot closer eye on the short-term changes in military operation. Short-term situation. And a lot more coordination between the airspace and the military operations in the short term. Also the same. They recommend conducting oversight on effective implementation of the measures adopted for the risk management of potentially hazardous military activities and perform periodic exercises for risk assessment based on different types of probable conditions. Apply the results obtained from the monitoring and exercises to identify the hidden threats and enhance the risk management accordingly. Again, with the to me, like, how could they have known? They couldn't. There was a human factor here that just can't be predicted. Yeah. Speaking of human factor, can you imagine that poor guy who launched the missiles? Yes. You he probably got fired. 
Ah, uh, that's the or least something. of his problems. I don't want to think about what else could have happened, but... He killed almost 200 people. Yes. Innocent people. Yes, it's terrible. Because I of an s- accident. I say right. he because it is generally... A he, but they. They. I don't know how many were involved in this either. I mean, we know there was... It literally sounded like one guy. Yeah, could have been. To be fair, we are talking about Iran, so it probably is a he. <laughs> yes. So, they they want the risk management to go through... To be involved with, like, exercises. So, practicing this kind of stuff. Like, how often should we be aware of military operations in the area around airports and when it could be dangerous and such... I still, I just, it's it's hard for me to imagine how they might predict such a thing. Do we even do exercises like that? There's similar related exercises. They do it so far away from everybody, though. But They I probably put a no-fly zone over areas where they're doing stuff like that. But that's this true. is just, you know, how in a zone that's so on edge can you ever predict a human error like this? I know. How, what can you really do? So I have a problem with the whole... Them saying, well, you should do more risk management. Well, I get that that's the only thing they can suggest, but what can you really what do? What else can you do? What yeah. can you do in a human error like that that's outside of this any kind of aviation was control? was literally an accident. Right. Or, or more of, a, of a, a miscommunication of sorts. Right. Like, how are you going to like be like, make sure that there's no miscommunication? I'm like, it's just going to happen. There's like no way. And the thing to me is unless the military is going to voluntarily tell like the, the what's the organization in charge of aviation in Iran? The AAIB of Iran. Oh, you mean the, the, uh, the actual, like the FAA of oh, Iran. Oh, the CAOI. That it's, it's a weird, it's got some weird. Hold on. I, I wrote it down. It's in my notes. I think it's the C. A-O-I-R-I. The Civil Aviation Organization of Iran. Okay. So them. So, unless the military... Which is also abbreviated C-A-O-I-R-I for the Civil Aviation Organization of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah, that makes more sense. That's that's why. There you go. So, and unless the military in Iran decided to voluntarily give that organization information about any time a weapon is moved or changed or what they're targeting which is not gonna happen it's not gonna happen because they have to maintain some level of secrecy secrecy Secrecy, yeah yes that's how all militaries work yep because there could be a mole in civil aviation giving the information to americans or any other could give it to terrorists so this comes down to which i guess we were classified as a terrorist but this, yes. So this comes down to they don't have a way to control this. There was no way. This was a mistake on an entity that they had no control over and never will and will never have any say in. They can't fix this problem. So this is one of those dangers of flying in and out of an active war zone. It's not really a war zone because Iran wasn't really necessarily a war zone, but an on edge culture. Where they are worried about war? A a tense situation. A very tense area, yes. That's the word I'm sticking with. It is also the danger of flying in and out of an actual war zone, don't get me wrong, but this wasn't, in theory, an actual war zone at the time. This was just a very on-edge culture. They recommend the same to states overseeing the airline. Risk management and exercises and such. Yeah. Yeah, to the Ukraine. It's like, okay... 
What are they going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, they're not definitely fly there, I guess. They're but... definitely not going to have any say in what Iran's military is doing. Yeah. <laughs> but some of some of these safety and risk mitigation techniques were in place for the recent uh, exodus of Afghanistan. Yes, and this is true. And the primary way of fixing problems like this is don't fly there. Yep. Which, which is... is number one thing the airlines do as soon as there's even a remote chance of there being tension most of the time. So in this case, it, That's it what could it, have been avoided only from that. That is, I mean, when everyone and their mother was leaving Kabul and all yes. of that, there was no commercial flights over that area. You could look at a flight radar from that day. Right. There's nothing. Any Even... flights that were going in and out of that airport, they would only allow to fly... I mean, first of all, it was a really high risk anyways. And it was military. For and the it was military. Part. And if they were departing as military, then they usually would have a route out protected by military. Yep. And even now, Qatar Airways is flying in and out of there, still getting people out. But that's still a really tense situation. Yes. I think all of this is basically to say... There's nothing we can do to fix it. Just don't fly There's there. There's not much. They just they need to be a lot more aware when a tense situation is going on to so I am understand that risk. Looking at the entirety of Afghanistan, as of the moment we're recording, there are no flights over the entire country. Yeah. On flight radar. Zero. Yep. Makes sense. Everyone's flying around. That's what they do. That's another risk mitigation thing is just don't fly over yeah. at all. They recommend ensuring that the airlines are able to quickly apply the open and public information issued by non-aviation sources in their processes of risk management. So anytime something does come up in the news, like to basically react to it right away as an airline. As an airline, you have to make those decisions. So they knew that at the very time that these flights were flying to and from Iran, there were really high tensions in the area. So they could have said, okay, we're not going to operate these flights to and from Iran for the time being. Yeah. But well, it's just, that's it's, just the safest thing to do. Like, yes. Don't fly there. Don't fly out of there if you know it's probably going to be a problem. Right. Now, you may be asking why exactly we decided to cover this flight, given that there's not a whole lot that civil aviation can do in this instance. For one, it's something we haven't covered before. There's one. that. But two, it is still a part of aviation safety. It is. And this... if you live in that part of the world, it's a very real reality. It's not so much what can we do to prevent it from happening again. It's more of... This is a possibility. This happened. Aircraft anymore are very safe on their own, and flying on airlines is very safe. But you have to understand there's always a very high risk when you go into a military zone or a war zone or a zone with high tension. And that's just because... Of nothing else other than military operations, which we the airlines have no control over and never will. So this is something that unfortunately, this is one place that unfortunately we can say, I'm not sure we'll ever have the right answer for safety for the airlines. Not not in this case. There have been... It's up to the militaries. There have been talks about putting missile detection systems on airliners. And while that's not entirely impossible, I don't know that that's not, the right answer either. Because Not every airliner would need one. Like, no, and that's, a, that's heavy. It is heavy. So anytime you add those things, you add weight. Because in theory, if you put a missile detection system, that airliner is not going to be able to get out of the way, for one. Two, what they would have to do is add on, what do they call it? 
defense system. Yeah. Yeah, basically an aircraft defense system. So what it would entail is flares. Which basically you're just turning it into Air Force One. And this requires a lot of weight. And it also is dangerous. It's just actually dangerous to be putting these things on airliners. But... Went for 99.9999999999% of civil aviation flights. This isn't a problem. No, it's unnecessary. So, there's no right answer. There's no great way to handle this. I only have a couple more. Obviously, that's not an actual statistic. Don't come for me. No, but point being. To the ICAO, they actually recommended many things. Um, Much of it has to do with just planning... just. Or the ICAO, as some people say. The ICAO. Please don't do that. No. ICAO. ICAO. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> it's ICAO. It's an abbreviation. ICAO. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. So a lot of their recommendations have to do with NOTAMs and airspace, just being careful with airspace, and having international standards on war zone flying prevention and things like that. And 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 I get that. And risk mitigation and such. So... They recommend supporting and encouraging states to improve the efficiency of risk assessment of civil aircraft operations over or near conflict zones and civil-military coordination with due consideration of the regional priorities and models. This is, again, a very, very hard thing to do and a very hard thing to be involved in. The ICAO is going to come in as a weird international organization asking militaries and states of like, hey, what you got going on? And should we be flying over you? And they're going to say, yeah, come on. But it's maybe not a good idea. Yeah. (sighs) I hate this whole thing. So, yeah, I have a problem with a lot of this. And I I understand the whole point of risk mitigation and everything. But again, there's just not much that can be done. Also, they recommend recognizing the need for timely cooperation during investigations of occurrences involving the military. ICEO should develop or expand guidance material addressing cooperation and coordination between states' accident investigation authorities and the military authorities. Yeah, since they were bulldozing the site after it happened. Yeah, things like that, and that the military didn't really want to have any say in what happened immediately after the accident. They were like, no, 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 we didn't do anything. No, it wasn't us, no. And then, like, three days later, like, yeah, okay, yeah, Yeah, we did it. Yeah, I... I don't like the cover-up culture that a lot of... We do it, too. To be fair, the United States does it, Everybody too. does. This We're is, notorious. Every yeah. country on Earth, actually, is but really bad But it's at actually this. not a great thing to be like, oh, no, we didn't do anything. What are you talking about? Like, to do denials initially is always a bad thing. Because that happened with the Korean Air 007, too. Yeah, they were like, no, we had nothing to do with this. For 10 years. Yeah, yeah. for a long time. They're like, nope, 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 no, I don't know what you're talking about. Nope. And I then think- it came out. 10 years later, and we'll t- if, again, we'll talk specifically more about it I think if we ever cover that. To but. this day, it's still denied when it comes to the Italian DC-9 that ended up in the Mediterranean that killed everybody because there were military operations in the area with aircraft flying around and one of them mistakenly shot at another aircraft and it was a DC-9. And they Great. never said, yeah, we did it. So it was never proven But that is the only thing that they can come up with as an answer to this after doing a formal investigation and putting the entire airplane back together. So, which is still in a museum, by the way. And then there's the uh, infamous Malaysia Flight 370. Missing. Still. Could have been military. No idea. There's a lot of speculation on a lot of these things. But there's just, unfortunately, there's some answers we'll never have. And, you know, ways of fixing this problem 
just may never exist. So for the time being, unfortunately, this is a risk that airlines just have to understand exists. And if they're going to operate in and out of a zone of tension, then that's their own risk. They're willing that they're taking. And it's on them if something happens to that airplane. And I understand that in this case, the, the aircraft was flying in and out of an airport that had said, yes, we have the means of discussing and making sure that the route is safe. So they had the Tehran ACC, but the Tehran ACC didn't know the changes that had happened and didn't know that there was actually still a risk to the airplane. So this just doesn't go far enough and it never will. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. Yeah. I don't um, even remember the flight, uh, anything. Pia, Papa Sierra, or Ukraine International Airlines. 752. Thanks for listening. Kind of a somber episode. Ugh, that was rough. But it's kind important, of brutal. Yeah, and very relevant since it happened not that long ago. Thank you for joining us for this morbid episode. Yeah. And thank you to our patrons. And As always. This would not be possible without you. Well, and thanks to our listeners, too. I mean, you guys are awesome, too. Like, yeah. everyone who's listening is it's, awesome. It's but. definitely been giving us a boost in listens. You guys are subscribing and sharing and what have you to our podcast and our episodes, and that's great. Thank you. All right. We hope you have a safe and healthy rest of your week. We will catch all of you next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.